Quando sono solo sono arrisonte, mancano le parole. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is 7.47 a.m. on May 2nd here on the West Coast. I am up and out here podcasting for all of you at this early hour. Um, why are we doing this so early again? Because I'm going to cover the second Amazon election. Oh, cool. Yeah. Where is that? In Staten yeah. Island? The vote count is today. The election wraps up on Friday. Is it in person? Is the vote in person? The vote was in person, and the vote count is also in person. Oh, cool. <laughs> is it dramatic? Like, do they count it like every single ballot at a time, or how is it? What, what, what do you get to see? Wow. Well, okay, so they won't let the reporters in because of COVID, so I have to okay. stay outside and watch it on Zoom. Okay. Cool. Um, and then just like wait for the union people to come in and out and the so, wow. lawyers. Is labor reporting like uh, NBA reporting where you see the same people everywhere? You just like, you know, you go down to the lobby of the Hampton Inn or wherever, you know, like the Holiday Inn Express. And then you look down and you're like, oh, wow, it's Sam Amick. He's a nice guy. You know, he's like an NBA reporter. He is a nice guy. Um, or and you're like, hey, what's up, man? You know, I did that for like a year or so. Where I, was, I mean, not not as much as like beat reporters, but you know, I'd go somewhere and yeah, totally. write a feature on this player. I'd be in the hotel and then I'd see like the same four people all the time, and they'd be yeah. like looking at Twitter. Is that what totally. is that what it's like? Okay, so, so yeah, you see like Alex. I feel Press like I everywhere. was out of town for so long, right? And now I'm coming to catch up on Staten Island, and like the beat reporters are like, "Oh, who's this interloper?" And I'm like, "Oh, hey, Lauren, hey, Louise," like trying to uh -huh. make friends with everyone. Oh, so you're the interloper, yeah? I'm that's the interloper, I... right? But yeah. for the last few weeks, I've yeah, I've certainly been seeing people <clears throat> the same thing. So we'll all be at like the Gregory's Coffee, taking a break between the votes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you get, is there like an etiquette with quotes and everything like that? I remember I was covering like a Clippers game or something like that way back in the day, or maybe it was a Lakers game. And um, I don't know why I was covering it because I was not a daily beat reporter, but I think I was writing a feature on somebody. Mm -hmm. And like Bill Plaschke, who's like a very famous old time LA Times column, sports columnist comes out and he's like, I got a quote that I'm not using if anyone needs it. <laughs> And so it was, cute. yeah, it was like this, like, <laughs> I, I saw that. this flash of what it used to be like, right? Aww. Like, now you can argue that it was all like white men sitting around being, you know, annoying, which is true, right? But then it was also just like kind of weird because it was like, this doesn't exist anymore. That's you know, amazing. What, like, like, none of the writers that are here even care about quotes, you know, right. like we're just all doing our thing, building our personal brands, Bill. Yeah. You know? Oh my <laughs> like, God, how What terrible. is this quote sharing thing? So do you guys do that? <laughs> like, do you say like, hey, Alex Press, I got like, I got, I got something I'm not using <laughs> from, Chris, from Chris Small. Oh my God, <laughs> I love that so much. It's like the great British bake-off of journalism. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let me help you. Your thing has inadequately proved whatever. <laughs> oh. I would say basketball was better than, um, Baseball, the few baseball games where I sat in the press box, I mean, it was like everything that you would think it would be. It was just like these old guys and they would wear their baseball writers of America <laughs> um, card, yeah. cards around their oh, neck gosh. on a lanyard. And they would walk around like they own the place. And I'd just be like, I hate all of you. You know, like, <laughs> like what is this? This is such like, this is exactly oh what God. the, like you're the, if I wanted to like 
have cover art for a story about like how the press box and baseball is toxic, I would just take a photo of you like sitting there <laughs> eating like a hot dog in the sixth inning, bored out of your mind, but like, you know, your only occupation is policing everybody else's behavior. You know, like <laughs> it's horrible. Um anyway, That's cool. <laughs> that does yeah, sound if you fun. Guys posted. The labor, yeah. The labor beat. You guys are like George Plimpton and Norman Mailer and down in uh down in Manila, you know, falling around oh Muhammad <laughs> Ali at this point. This is, oh my god, what a different uh, demographic! So funny. It's like yeah, it's like Gnome and I'm sure like Lauren Lauren Carey Curley, right? Yeah, like I saw Lauren the other day yeah. at Staten Island. Yeah. Yep, everyone. This is clearly no shade at any of these people, by the way. Um, Oh, no. I think it's great. I think yeah. I just think it would be. I I like that stuff actually. It was uh, whenever you're like kind of getting to know other reporters and then you see them and you can kind of like decompress a little bit. It's nice. I mean, that's what it was like on the protest beat for me. Ultimately, yeah. like I'd see the same people all the time. Like you know, there's yeah. a guy who worked at the Guardian U.S. who I would always see. I saw Wesley Lowry a lot. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then you'd see people who you didn't quite know, but, you know, like NPR reporters, for example, but you sort of see their face and you wave or something like that. No, no. We're not all bad. The media. Right. Yeah. I, was, it is, though, what you said, like the personal brand thing. I think oh, this is a challenge to solidarity, but the labor reporters are good about not doing that, not giving into that. So that's good. Yeah. Were, were Chris Smalls and ALU were they heavily involved in this uh, campaign also? Yeah, it's the same union. Right. So it's, yeah. So that's the same core organizing committee across the two warehouses. Okay. So, yeah. What do you think? Strategies, same tactics. I mean, what do you think happens if they don't get it? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. On to the next one. A little bit. Like they are, they are organizing in a different warehouse in Santa and also in the same complex. But, you know, Amazon still hasn't accepted the outcome of the first election either. So, right. The moving forward is is kind of just doing more of the same. I don't know if Amazon labor union will file objections if they lose. Because they if there were any regular, irregularities, they could also say that there were problems with this election. We need to do a do-over. But I haven't heard anything about that. So, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's posted after what I see today. Yeah. More cool. soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was an appropriate warm-up topic. <laughs> Yesterday was May Day. And one of the things we're going to talk about, uh, I don't know, Tammy, I watched this thing. Tammy wanted what us to think? watch this uh, <laughs> documentary about from 1979 by Stuart Bird and Deborah Schaefer. And um, it was about, it was about the Wobblies and it was uh, interviews with very old people. <laughs> I don't know. From, at, to, at the time in 1979. Yeah. yeah all these yeah. people. This is like 101 Dalmatians, you know? <laughs> like, well, you know, because like everybody, the joke is always all the 101 Dalmatians are dead because the movie. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, these people um, were old when the film was made. And it was a, I thought it was like a cool film. But I don't know, Tammy, why'd you want us to watch this? Yeah. So I wanted Jay and Andy and us to discuss this film because it seems like a lot of the Wobblies stuff, the tactics, the politics are very much in the air 
like around yeah. Amazon Labor Union and a lot of the new movement organizing that's occurring now. And I thought as students of protest movements, students of history on this podcast, you guys would have thoughts on, well, what are the takeaways of the Wobblies? Like, why do we yeah. mythologize them and still think about them so much when their influence right now is pretty small, like in actual numbers, like the IWW mm-hmm. still exists. There are members, there have been campaigns that are allied with IWW. I know some mm-hmm. of our listeners are IWW members, but they're right. certainly not the union where you're like, oh yeah, they're leading this fight, right? They're right. sort of, it, it's a thing that's kind of like ambient and sort of like in our bones and stuff <laughs> that we are inspired by, but right. maybe we're not exactly doing what they had envisioned. So right. I thought it's, it'd be cool it's to like talk a nostalgic- about their touch point in some sort of way exactly Um, and i think like wobbly's members today though would reject that and they would say no we're still doing stuff we're still relevant in these particular ways so yeah but you know i think their ideas of like having everyone in one big union like not rejecting nationalisms and class and race and skill level like all that stuff is very influential in our generation of labor thinking right right yeah um why do you think that is why do you think it's influential to me it really jives with this kind of like Occupy era horizontalism Mm -hmm. and stuff that we as like post-colonial people are thinking about, right? That people are all valid and that Mm -hmm. we don't need to have strict hierarchies of things and that we can, we, we see like the skills that are in everybody's work. And also we're much more of a service economy. So I think like this whole thing about like what is skilled, what is unskilled, like if we think about it hard, I think we can see that that's those are like mythical divisions that are yeah. like made to divide workers. So I think in all those ways, like their politics are, have kind of come back around to us. Right. right. Um, I agree. But I'm curious what you guys think. And if you guys in your fields and like your circles, like hear wobbly type yeah. stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like you're saying that like in your labor reporting or just like in the, I don't know, like labor circles, <laughs> IWW comes up a lot uh, today. I think it does. I mean, so for instance, like you will hear some of the Amazon labor union organizers, like make references to literature and thinking from that era or like, you know, there's, I feel like there's been a resurgence of attention to IWW songs and IWW like figureheads. Um, And maybe that's just me, you know, seeing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like basically IWW when it emerged in the early 20th century was counterpose directly right. to the AFL, which was an institutional union led by Gompers, Samuel Gompers, who was saying like, we're going to organize the craft workers, the most skilled workers in our society, because that's where we have leverage. Right. And kind of like all of the unskilled people be damned because it's not strategic. Right. And the Wobblies were saying like, no, F that. Right. It's important to organize everybody. Right. Um, and the AFL, know, and then, the AFL was like color segregated or like did not allow black members yeah it was very racist at that time it was very against you know immigrants and right um but then later of course it became afl cio which was a merger with like the more progressive cio you know which you know is different from the wobblies but kind of had some of the sensibility of like we're going to take in the unskilled workers yeah yeah I, i mean i think part of the reason why it's popular today though is because it does have a more radical tinge to it at a time when i think that people want that because Mm -hmm. I think that in a lot of ways, labor organizing to many of today's unorganized, largely unorganized workforce and who many of whom work in places where it's even hard to imagine how things could be unionized, you know, like, I don't know, like, did you see it? Like I saw this tweet where somebody was like, oh, that, you know, Twitter, Twitter employees should unionize, you know, and I was thinking about it and I was like, oh my, like, there's like the chances that are 
negative 5,000%, right? Like there's <laughs> no, yeah. Cause there's no group of people who are less interested in unionizing than tech workers. Oh, I see. You know? like, <laughs> um, yeah. But there are people trying to move in that direction. I don't know what the actual like. Yeah. Okay. But the reality is, but... of it is that every, all every tech worker wants is like three years to work at a True. place so their shares vest and that they can leave. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. But that's it. And they right. want to have as little, as few sort of like organizational meetings as possible. Right. They're not worried about their pay. And they certainly aren't worried about, for example, the people who like fill up their um, very expensive seltzer fountains. Have you yeah. seen these things, by the way? <laughs> the soda stream? Like, no, there's like this $5,000 thing that you can get installed in your house or workplace that just like makes hot water, like, kind of hot tea ready hot water but it also makes like cold seltzer <laughs> it's incredible what? anyway you can buy in every... of those devices for like 200 bucks right yeah but you have to wait for <laughs> this just spits it out Andy, right yeah. okay. <laughs> it's amazing okay <laughs> anyway they're in every single tech workplace here in the in the really? bay area five thousand bucks yeah. wow okay we had one at vice well, and it was amazing i used it all the time yeah I would use but it. like but look you, so like i don't know what do you think jay though about like there were there were some small things right in tech organizing like google and amazon and microsoft workers who were speaking up and doing walkouts around the environment who are doing walkouts yeah. and letter writing around immigration collaboration. So there have been things right. like those aren't union efforts, but they are right. like small organizing efforts. So They're I wonder protests. what you think about that. Like, is that just yeah. very. Those are discreet? more like ERG type of stuff, right? Um, and employee resource group type of stuff that happens, I think mostly on Slack or whatever corporate messaging. That's how they boards. started. Yeah. But that's a lot different than an actual yeah, organizing right. effort. Yeah. I mean, like there's I, I don't know I try and be like I don't I don't, I don't mean to be like negative about this it's just that like I know a lot of tech workers yeah you know I've reported some on this industry I live here in the Bay Area <laughs> like believe me you know mm -hmm. <laughs> the idea that Twitter could ever be union you get like five percent of the vote amongst <laughs> at least the engineers right right and those in a lot of ways are the most important people now you might be able to yeah have some smaller part of the workforce try and join some other like, you know, service workers union or something like that. But the truth of the matter is that they would just cancel a contract. Right. Um, because all those people are contractors anyway, like they're not, yeah. they're not going to be employees. Anyway, my point was being yeah, that I think that within that space, right. Where a lot of people are in these places where an actual unionization effort is, impossible that mm -hmm. it does become very theoretical and the more theoretical it is the more appealing a radical option is i think and yeah so i think that's part of it but i also think part of it is that i don't know i the last time i saw i heard the iww or saw people its members when i went to uh the ilwu protest here in oakland right and oh, yeah. um they had angela davis there i think i talked about it on the yeah. podcast right yeah. but I think that that also is part of the appeal, right? It's a throwback to a type of racial solidarity and, and quest for racial justice that feels much more authentic, I think, to young people than, um, yeah. you know, uh, than Robin D'Angelo or something like that. <laughs> now, sure. you can argue that that binary, I would even argue that that type of binary is silly, you know? But I think but it's a also, type of common binary. Yeah, I think it's right. 
I think it's one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm the only one who's yeah. mature enough. Jay's tempering his comments, like, and Andy and I are going. And capacious enough to accept, you know, that there are many types of anti-racist <laughs> behavior, you know. But, um, but I think that's basically it, right? Like, it's like a, it, it does feel nostalgia bound. But I also think that it is also practical in the ways that you were saying, Tammy, where if everybody thinks that one way is good then you should probably use that way, right? Um, uh, even if it's going to be, you're facing a lot of uphill climbs. Andy, what do you yeah. think? Um, so just to back up, I thought the movie was really super interesting. Um, it's the kind of thing where I study capitalism and labor, but I actually don't know the history of like labor unions and organization. Um, and maybe that's like a personal failing, but I also kind of think that's part of our generation, which is that mm-hmm. we're interested in these topics, but we kind of come at it from, uh, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but more realist. Like, in other words, in the 60s and 70s, when a lot of scholars would study this stuff, they were very much about labor unions, organization. There was a real optimism mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s that, you know, this is the end point of capitalism, right? Big unions, big, big labor. And now when people study this stuff, I think that is kind of look, we look back on the 60s, 70s, 20th century moment as a little bit too rosy a little bit too optimistic um and so it's actually kind of i would say like in academia it's a little passe to study organization and maybe that's like a you know that just like is a is like our fault as academics right but the labor um, historians have been kicked out of the marxist group chat well that's the thing the we study <laughs> so so like group chat. yeah the group chat um <laughs> the slack i i think like the argument like the argument in the 19th century was first you have a a workforce in itself right and then you have a workforce for itself and i study i think most of us study like the first half which is like how does the workforce get formed how does capital find labor through all the sorts of means like slavery like casual labor and so on the second half of the argument like 1917 is the moment right that a lot of people especially in the U.S. and Western Europe, look back upon as the lost moment. Like that was the high point. That's the kind of the high point of the Wobblies in this documentary. And people, uh, you know, there's this, some people might have heard of this group called Platypus, this kind of obscure leftist group that started at the University of Chicago. They're pretty wild, but they have these articles where they're just, they're just fixated on 1917 as Mm. the moment things went wrong. But that was like, that was the moment we could have captured. Okay, you you have to explain what happened in 1917. Uh. It was just like when it was like the high point of the IWW organizing and the argument, the argument is like, you know, when, once you have a working class that gets formed and you have all these, it becomes very evident to everyone that we all have the same shared common interests against capital. Uh, all the stuff they talked about in the film, like we're against the wage, the we're against the wage, right? Like it's not about nation or industry mm-hmm. or region, right? It's, it's, national and potentially international once that becomes like the basis for organization then we can overcome uh anything that's kind of like dividing us and world you know based on just like quick quickly looking at you know the the history of the iww and the documentary like world war one happens yeah and that leads to like a retrenchment of like nationalism the afl you know promises the u.s government we're not going to go on strike because the war is more important and then the u.s government just kind of really crushes just like really like sends the police to like crush a lot of these strikes and stuff and i think something is happening in you know europe as well with germany and um oh and after the russian revolution all sorts of western european governments freak out and really crush all their socialist movements 
So that is kind of, I think, the high point for a lot of people who study this stuff and think about the, not just unions, but socialism, right? The potential yeah. for socialism. Like, ironically, the Russian Revolution, the high point of socialism is also the moment when a lot of governments around the world, in a very reactionary way, crush socialist movements. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. just the, the movie was just eye-opening because you see the actual working out of, as you were saying, like these theoretical arguments in my head, like, mm-hmm. yes, like labor built the world, so labor should organize together to overcome capital. Um, and there were, and the, the Wobblies for that, you know, 10-year 10, 10 period, they were making the argument. It seemed they were making some success. I don't know, I don't know the actual scale yeah. of success, right? But they were making some gains with these big strikes all around the US. Um, and then the film... I mean, through the history, like it kind of peaks with 1917, 1919, right? And then yeah. they're kind of more or less like controlled, right? By the, mm-hmm. by the government by then, from then onwards. But it was, it was really eye-opening just in the sense of this is like a lot of the same stuff that we study in academia, but um, just like the labor process and the proletarianization process. But this is, it's, it's hard to write about this stuff, honestly. I was thinking like, if I were to write a labor history from the standpoint of movements, it's like, how do you frame this? Like, you could do a very rosy, optimistic version where you're like cheerleading them on and talking about how they were righteous and so on. You could also talk about, well, you know, in the end they were crushed and, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's a lot easier just to talk about like the economics, uh, focus on the economic mm-hmm. side of, of labor, right? Like numbers and you have hard facts. It's, it's hard to like, I don't know how you felt like after the end of the film, it's, it's hard to know how to feel about the movement. Um, yeah like their successes and their failures, right? Yeah, yeah, I think in the oral histories, they capture some of that even within the members themselves reflecting on that history because they were were like very enthusiastic and excited to talk about those high points. But then at the end, you did hear a lot of them sort of say, yeah, but then we didn't know where to go after we were crushed or like we didn't know what how to kind of instantiate the forms of organization that we had envisioned and believed in so much. And then I think the the movie, um, like sort of the the middle point of between like your work and the study of organizations is like the footage of the actual working conditions, mm-hmm. right. which I thought was really great in the film. Yeah. And also for the three of us with PNW connections, like yeah, the totally. images of the logging and all, you know, the mining, all of that stuff out West is just so you're yeah. going to die. You It seems like you're going to die every second that you're doing this job. You know, Everett, So Everett Washington is central to this. Everett, history. Which is That's so where funny. I grew up. And my mom, yeah. my parents were in the timber industry and I didn't really know this history for those. I, you you know, should show them the movie. Yeah. Their parents yeah, are in the exactly. timber industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, I mean, yeah, you can look this up, but you know, they were, they were like sending Pacific Northwest logs to China in the eighties. Uh, so they were oh, like, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I remember at some point I had read about Everett Washington, this thing called the Everett Massacre, which is in the film, yeah. you know, for listeners, you could watch the film you, or you can just, you know, look it up. And I would just <clears> remember <throat> thinking like, this couldn't have been a big deal, you know, like, I feel like every time growing, like Washington State just feels so disconnected from the rest of the nation's history that I always felt like whenever you learned about something in the Pacific Northwest, it was just some local historian puffing up some small event. <laughs> um, but it's actually quite central to the film. Um, and I was looking up this up further, like this newspaper, uh, called the industrial worker, which is like the NWW's paper. It was based in Spokane and then Seattle. It's so, like, for some reason, the yeah. Pacific Northwest was a real hub of a lot of this stuff. However, uh, it is now home to the, what, largest factory. Boeing? Boeing? 
in the world, right? Yeah. Isn't the Boeing factory? Yeah. The yeah. So I grew up basically in the shadow of the Boeing factory, which is like in the Guinness book of records is the biggest factory. Um, and you think about between timber and Boeing, it was a real industrial town. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's two but huge now it's, industries. It yeah. still felt that way. Yeah. When we were growing up. But now, right. Microsoft was there. But <clears throat> And it didn't have its balance. But I think like this in the study of social, I, the social movements of unionism, um, it seems to, I, I guess the disciplinary boundary, it seems to be more in sociology than history uh-huh. or something. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I yeah. read labor history too, but I think, you know, to get at the kind of texture of like, how do organizations move and work? It seems like more like sociologists, sociologists for sure. to that a lot. Yeah. And um, I guess for me, yeah, I, I think it is, a, it, I think it can be a very depressing history to, to be quite honest. Like, the best and most sympathetic labor historians and labor sociologists will take you through these kind of inspiring waves of things. And then at the end, you kind of feel like you're starting over again. Yeah. You know, but I think um, at the same time, that's, I mean, I think that's why we do the show and why we are engaged with politics. We have to believe on some level that there are little threads like ropes that do continue yeah. and, 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 you know, kind of influence the next wave in the same way that like, yeah, IWW, yeah. certain of those ideas might have carried over to the CIO. Sure, right. this stuff gets watered down over time. But then there are these moments like right now it does feel like something's happening. Yeah. Something's been happening, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. I do feel like part of the argument they were making is still valid today. On the other hand, we could talk about a lot of things are different, you know, than 1917. I guess it's exactly 100 years ago or just over. Um, And it is hard to imagine people organizing in the same way. In the basic sense that, you know, for them, a lot of the the big, uh, sorry for using this word, the big trope, right, was like we built everything. And I don't know if workers today feel like they're building anything in the U.S. Mm Because you said it's like a service economy. They feel like they're service right, but they right? say moving like, things around i mean there's an argument to make be made after covid exactly, right yeah. that the service workers were the ones taking all the risk that they were the ones who had to go to work that they were the ones that kept the nation going sure and that um i think that argument is pretty powerful i think it's one that people do feel very emotionally responsive to regardless of one's politics you know mm-hmm. because especially for the group of people who uh had everything surfaced to them right like mm-hmm. and i think that that's important like you can inspire a lot of guilt and anger when you look at some of these covid statistics and what happened in some of these neighborhoods especially like latino neighborhoods here in california right yeah and they're like well how did all these people get covid it's like well they still have to go to work Right. Yeah. It's how you got your food, you know. Right. Um, they did essential workers. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so essential work in itself could be an organizing term. Right. But I don't know. It's not because uh, I don't know. Maybe because we didn't but talk about is... it on our podcast enough. <laughs> um, but there's a this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a there's something I want to like, Andy, to your point here. Yeah. Jimmy, I want you to respond to this is that, um, you know. You put this in, but I'm just going to read it because um, I want your response to it, which is uh, this is from an article in Screen Slate about this film. Like the re- the real reason why we're rewatching this is because it's being re-released. Is that right? Like, is that why? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Almost showed it or something like that. And I right. was kind okay. of excited by that. Um, and at the time of our conversation last week, Bird, this is from the article, Bird and Schaefer were anticipating a key, these are the creators of the film or the directors of the film, a Q&A scheduled to follow a Friday, April 29th screening of the film at Metrograph. For those don't, who don't know, Metrograph is like the fancy indie theater 
no, what neighborhood it is at, at Lower East Side or something, Lower East which Side. was also to yeah. include Chris Smalls, president of the new ALU. On the day of the premiere, management at Metrograph canceled that evening's event, apparently out of concerns that it would become a venue for criticism for the theater's own unfair labor practices, which have become yeah. an open <laughs> secret in New York's film community. Uh -oh. Last year, Metrograph's founding artistic director, Jake per Perlin, programmer Elisa Ma and publicist Michael Lieberman all exited the theater. This March, a former Metrograph employee claimed that management fired its box office staff and offered money exchange for signing NDAs. Okay, so, I mean, there's two parts here. First of all, I don't care about the labor conditions at Metrograph. Like, I do care, you know, but that's not, we shouldn't talk about it because, you know, whatever. Maybe, like, uh, but this idea, like, obviously, there are connections being made if, if uh, mm -hmm. Bird and Schaefer want exactly. to have, you know, like, sort of 1979. So that's a year. So this film's 42 years old, right? How old mm -hmm. are Bird and Schaefer now? Like, are they, they must be in their 80s or something. They're pretty old. Um, you know, they want to have Christian Smalls to talk at the, at the at this film. Like, obviously, some <laughs> connections are being made. Tammy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I thought that this is kind of just like a beautiful and ironic and perfect sort of epilogue to watching the film, which is, yes, that Smalls and a lot of his comrades in ALU are thinking about the early 20th century and connecting their struggles to that and have interest yeah. in Wobbly's culture. And then the fact that, you know, Metrograph employees and sort of these like white collar artsy employees would also draw these connections. And then that the management would fear these connections, I think is like just perfect. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think also just, you know, I think this is quite obvious by now, but it's amazing the extent to which Chris Smalls has become the kind of labor leader of our moment. Uh huh. I mean, at Staten Island over the weekend, it was incredible the extent to which politicians from all over, unionists from all over were basically there for the photo op. Like they right. wanted to support the movement, of course, right. but they also want to ally themselves with who the hot shit is. And it's like this dude from you... New Jersey who organized right. in Staten Island, who was like unapologetically black and like doesn't didn't go through any of the stupid union grooming stuff, you know? Yeah. So I think it's kind of this really, it feels like this very free form moment. In, does that in, like labor I mean, organizing right now? Yeah, we already had this conversation, I guess, but that does make me a little nervous, right? When you put so much on one person, because um, they build them up, you tear, they tear them down. You see the same right, cycle. But right now, we, it, I agree with you, Andy. I just think that there's no alternative right now because sure, you yeah. need that person to captivate people's attention. Yeah. And I don't know. I've thought about it. I think his main characteristic that people are. Um, sort of flocking to is that he's a fighter you know mm -hmm. like he's and he also can be magnanimous and so you know fighting with aoc is no small thing yeah. right and i think him doing that inspired a lot of people you yeah know? and um i don't know i have these all these thoughts on aoc's actual popularity right now and they're all like none of them are good you know like, but AOC, well, they're okay like... now she was there last weekend and they <laughs> no i know but of... i meant generally but, yeah. like i was wondering yeah, yeah. What, i know um... like i think aoc was the chris smalls of four years ago right like everyone, <laughs> everyone put a lot of their hopes on her as just Funny. like yeah i mean fresh. it's you know with many differences sure right? she's, she's, she's working class she's young she's from the bronx or you know she's from not manhattan um she was romanticized and She's just, right. yeah. And every now every mistake or misstep or perceived That's misstep fair. is part of, and it's like, right. Well, I mean, not, I, yeah. Anyway, I, I think that, like, yeah, it's just that Chris Mell is not like a, in Congress, obviously, which sure, is but, very yeah. different, I think, just given <laughs> the responsibilities that one has. Um, but I think he's, 
a fighter and I think that him sort of saying, oh, we're cool now. But I think him also, you know, being willing to say things about Jeff Bezos or Amazon in general and to not just sort of play it safe or political. I think that's the core of his appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think like, you know, something about like, like I do think that he should talk to Bird and Schaefer. I hope that they keep doing it. Yeah. But this is kind of how stuff, I don't know, like, you know, you want to talk about like elite capture or something like that, right? It would be like Chris Malls talking at Metrograph about the Wobblies, <laughs> about like a 42 year old film, you know, because like it, it's fine, but you know, like, and it, but it does feel a little like, okay, like, you know, like wh- who is what? this for, right? Like, who is this for? Like, what, who is this audience for? Um, and it's important to convert that audience or to make them think differently, I guess. But like anyone who's going to that is already converted anyway. Anyway, I don't really you mean you mean the Metrograph is like a kind of a snooty, fancy place. Yeah. 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 That's fair. I, mean, I only went there once. The tickets were so expensive. <laughs> it is really expensive. I mean, interestingly, in I mean, they also so then like a bunch of <clears throat> radicals ex- organized this like shadow screening of the mm-hmm. Wobblies. Yeah. Like in response. Right. Why can't they do that? Stuff, which is good, yeah. I think. Yeah, so totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's, that is challenging for somebody like Chris Malls right now because he is being invited to all the fanciest places. Exactly. And like yeah. some of that stuff is helpful for the union and he has to make decisions about like what is good and what crosses the line. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, the, I, mean, I mean, you know, it was like good for the Black Panthers to meet with Barbara Walters and you know what it was that tom wolf piece called oh the radical chic and the party whatever yeah yeah Yeah. um but uh i don't know i think i mean it's way too early to start purity testing anybody so that's not what i'm doing it's not about purity testing it's about i'm really just saying worrying about anyway right the more theoretical this is i would say right and the more caught up in the language of you know, drawing connections to different points in history. Mm-hmm. I think the worse it is off, right? If this becomes theorized in the public facing, and this would not be anybody at ALU's fault, it would be the people who cover its fault. The more this becomes like an uh, Tammy, you and your little, you know, and your little huddle of friends who are sitting around drinking starbucks in front of this coffee not starbucks i'm sorry but you know sitting around being like hey you know um how's it going i heard there's an opening at the nation (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding um right i think that there needs to be i hope that the stuff is much more concrete and less theoretical just because i do think that there are large portion of the population not me but whose brains will turn off the more it becomes like (laughs) another exercise in history this is all going into my theory that history academic historians yeah. have way too much power in the public discourse right now and that we yeah, should stop funny. thinking about history too, so much right like well, i don't understand it. i think Why it is, is very concrete i agree i agree and i think you're right that it's yeah maybe i mean i think people like yes people like me and others will get our tendency would be to get excited about oh what are the texts that are influential right in right, right but honestly the texts that are influential are literally texts from that period saying these are the steps that we use to organize. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean they're they're not these kind of sweeping, you know, 
Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of sort of theory in them. Mm-hmm. It's very kind of concrete about organizing strategy. So I think yeah. That's, yeah. that's that is always I, useful. And I do think you're honestly, I can't think of a single labor reporter who has violated this, you know. And so obviously, I'm just like <laughs> Jay's issued a warning here. just in case. Right. No, I because I actually <laughs> think that the coverage of this has been very good by everybody yeah. who's been doing it, you know. Um, and I certainly appreciate it. Um, but I don't know. That's my that when I read the word metrograph, that was the thought that came out. <laughs> I think I don't even like that place. Well, well the I movie think, is screening elsewhere. Yeah, and <laughs> online. Yeah. Um, I, I think the comparison with Amazon to the movie is interesting because there are things that kind of make the <clears throat> that are like parallel, right? Which is like the what you know, as we're talking about before, IWW, I guess, was particular or unique in its time for organizing immigrant labor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in an age of globalized labor and globalized, um, you know, trade, and you know, that's a lot of the coverage of the Amazon labor union. That well, that's how they got the name Wobbly, right? Like the first, I mean, quote, the this first sound in the, the apocryphal, yeah. The first sound in the film is like some old white guy going like, "The Chinaman couldn't pronounce the W," and he said, "I wobbly wobbly," and that's where we came up yeah, with the yeah. wobblies. And I was like, "This is amazing!" And if you want to make a film that appeals to me, shoot, <laughs> shoot it in like film from the seventies. Oh it will God. always look so beautiful. Yeah, which this film looks beautiful. It's beautiful. really nice. And uh, use the word Chinaman liberally, <laughs> and I'll be in. I'll be like, "All right." <laughs> My two rubrics I, for a I good film. I do wish there had been a Chinaman seventies film, and I know right? and Chinaman. Um, the the Wobbly's <laughs> website, by the way, says it is not, it cannot verify that story. Yeah, it it's one, it's one of three theories. Uh, it's yeah. a pod. People do say yeah. it a lot. Yeah, yeah. What that it was maybe not Chinaman, with the word Chinaman. Chinaman, Chinaman, in, in, in okay. In but Vancouver, do the Chinaman right? really yeah. pronounce Andy? You being the Chinaman yeah, here, yeah. did Chinaman really say Wobbly instead of W? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know why it would be hard to say. These are all sounds of Mandarin. Double wobble. W- I should. I don't see an w- accent w- where it. Double w- 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 No, <laughs> Tammy just really did bad. a Tammy did a Korean accent. Double w- Yeah, yeah. Double w- Yeah. See, that's not wobbly. <laughs> I don't. I don't see it. I feel like this is a this is a fake story, but it's I like know. the magical Chinaman <laughs> flew in and gave him a name for <laughs> his hysterical mispronunciation. Flew in on a dragon, gave him a name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh <laughs> but <You're> like, <laughs> so, I mean, that basic point that was like, well, you know, the begin the film begins with, I guess, testimony in a courtroom where people are asked, like, "What nation do you belong to? Where you're a citizen?" And they say, "We don't yeah. belong to anywhere. We only belong to the IWW." And I think that's part of the appeal of the coverage of ALU that they don't worry where you, where where you come from, you know, what what race you are, what sex you are. They just care that you are part of the workforce and that you know, you qualify therefore as part of the labor union. Um, the interesting kind of contrast though is, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago, all the coverage about how ALU um, did not, or yeah, like kind of try to distance themselves from traditional big unions or, or try to do it by themselves. And, you know, at some point, I don't know that like, if you talk to the organizers, what they would say about this, right. But the IWW's whole point is like, you're not supposed to belong to a specific sector or company or even nation, right? You are part of this thing called the international labor workforce, international working class. Working class. Um, so at some point you would assume like ALU would have the ambition to join with a bigger union or create a bigger union that goes beyond Amazon, right? Um, and that might just be a conversation about like timeline 
and tactics in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there seems to be like kind of there, right? Like, do you feel like you know? Obviously, we live in a era where everybody gets to see the same video on social media, right? Do you think that that connection's already happening with like spontaneous organizing happening at different big chains everywhere now? And every time it seems like you read the news or log on to social media some some other workplace has yeah like starbucks coded. killing it yeah right right so maybe those connections are being made informally right now yeah i do think i don't know but here's my last question about this and then we'll move on but like you know i think that in some ways that the the comparison is more apt because we have a completely multi-ethnic right workforce right like the people are from all around the world right. um that the question that you would have instead of asking a bunch of white people in 1979, where are you from? And they all, you know, would say I'm from the international workers of the world or whatever. Right. They would, but if you ask them, okay, where'd you grow up? They would say, you know, I don't know, Bellingham, Washington or something like that. No, but a lot of them are Italian, right? A lot of them spoke spoke with deep accents. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, now you have like a thoroughly, you have a workplace that looks like the Amazon warehouse where people are coming from all different countries. Um, And that you need some sort of organizing that is not going to, that is going to feel inclusive Mm -hmm. and an international frame might be the right one. Right. Um, But, uh, and you know, would also have the benefit of being correct, (laughs) right? Right. Like the correct frame. And so I don't know, that sort of stuff does excite me, but um, right. it also sometimes feels like a bit theoretical, except for the fact that it did seem to work in this one instance, right? Um, but I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think that's the challenge basically here, right? Like, you remember that story about those Sikh workers who were killed in um, work, FedEx right. Warehouse, right? Oh, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sikh workers, yeah. Um, you have pockets of laborers who... Uh, the greater public doesn't even know that they're there. You know, like a lot of people's response yeah. is like, well, why are all the sick, sick people in that area? Um, and uh, you need something that will bridge that gap. And I don't think it can be, I don't know. I don't want to get too cranky about it, but you know, a call for justice broadly around certain things doesn't really do it. You know, I think it needs yeah. to be, broader like it needs to be a sense of inclusion um and we don't really have any of the language for that right now um just because everything is so wrapped up in like comparative well i feel like sorry go on no no, i'm done yeah i mean i feel like there's a difference between in terms of like the contemporary landscape right there are political causes not organized around the workforce of the wage and working conditions and there are those that are and that is kind of the difference with um that i mean that for better or for worse that's kind of like my test on like you know where could this go in the long term like is it actually organized around stuff that people have an everyday investment in as in their workforce their wage better working conditions or is it a thing where people can just kind of like sign a petition and move on with their life you know um and i feel All like right. the, the more that it is about everyday you know bread and butter things, then that's good, right? That, that creates like a locked in uh, constituency. And that is, that, that is like the encouraging heartening thing to see about this. So like, you know, um, I mean, yeah, to, to the extent, like 
the example that the example you gave it could be about like workplace protections or just like you know labor protections and not so much about i mean it is about racism it is about xenophobia right but to me but you could also make it also about like you know these workers come from different parts of the world anyone who works should feel solidarity with them for workplace safety and right all that stuff right um it isn't just about the inside circle of six and the outside circle of allies you know it's like actually everyone who works should feel invested in protecting each other and all that so yeah, that but- i mean that's 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 the theoretical argument right the first the first universal class is the, is the working class right everyone else is and belongs to a nation and there's no solidarity across nations right or the problem is that like go ahead Tammy, all sorry. good functional unions right now are in fact very like integrated and multi-ethnic and right, they yeah. are necessarily responsive to all of the kind of linguistic and cultural I, I mean i was things that that demands yeah and i was so, thinking yeah. watching the film when people <laughs> complain about the white working class like they have this outdated image of this film right where the working class was immigrant but basically western european for the early half of the 20th century. And what has everyone been saying for the last five years? It's like, no, the working class is not a white working class. It's multi-ethnic, it's immigrant, it's all, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, hopefully that argument- I wish they had this, the workers in this film in mind. I don't actually think that's who they're imagining. I think they're imagining like a like mid 20th century, like completely AFL. assimilated white- workers. Right, sure, sure, sure. But um, even when you watch the film, right. you're like, you're like all right, like everyone's white, <laughs> you know, like, sure. yeah, they are, they are yeah. immigrant. They are, a lot of them have like European, right, like accent. Italian accent, mm-hmm. European, I don't know what that is, an Italian accent, but um, uh, yeah, it does feel like, I guess I would say like, you know, post 65 people like us would be like, we don't recognize, I don't recognize this United States, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's really fascinating. It's like a different country. Yeah, it's basically it's Europe, very, very Europe. Different. You don't recognize it having grown up in Everett, Washington. No, but, like, <laughs> but Everett, Washington doesn't look like that anymore. You know, it le- no, what it's, about I think if you drive 10 miles outside of Everett, Washington? To like Monroe or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah. This yeah. is like where my Peninsula kind of looks like this. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. I mean, it looks like this. But yeah. After they all have like Seahawks caps on. Hard, hard years of living. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I don't actually don't think that area is like that anymore andy like my uh my sister yeah. lives up in mount vernon right. and you know there's a huge latino population in mm-hmm. mount vernon um and a lot of white people but uh you know very few koreans outside of my sister <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's it, it has changed i don't know i think that it's this the big challenge here of course is that every messaging from both sides of the political aisle right now is extremely anti-immigrant, mm-hmm. right? Extremely anti-immigrant labor. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, uh, there's a story in the Times about how, uh, you know, basically everybody was screaming high alert for Biden on immigration stuff, and you know that it was going to hurt him. And it's not like Biden has been pro-immigration, you know, no. <laughs> like, yeah. like, uh, but you know, that he needed to talk about it more or something like that, which is also strange to me because Biden doesn't talk about anything anymore. You know, like, it's not <laughs> like he's like out there talking yeah. about stuff. Right. I mean, am I wrong about I this? haven't like, heard his voice in a couple like years. A ghost, right. Yeah. I mean, I saw him at the White House Correspondents Dinner thing. And then I was like, oh, yeah. This guy. I mean, the question is for the thirty-three billion dollars for Ukraine. I know, right? Bigger military. Like, would Amazon 
ever come out in support of like Chinese labor? Would the Starbucks workers come out in support of like the coffee labor? This might just be like theoretical besides the point, but that's, that's kind of like the thing, right? Like right, if, right. this is really where like an international working class thing. Maybe and, like, down the line. Yeah. You know, but, like, but not right now. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Let's change subjects. Tammy, you got anything last things to say here as our labor expert? Thanks for watching it. Yeah. Do, I mean, is there, a I thought it was cool. To... I don't know. I'll watch any documentary from the 1970s. It can be about anything. And Even I'll just if watch they it. don't say Chinaman, that's just <laughs> a bonus. Yeah, the Chinaman is a bonus, but you know, any <laughs> documentary from the 70s is always going to really at least look cool. Quite well done. And you can shoot on that type of, you know, like that new Lakers show is shot on film. Um, mm-hmm. That's no, why it looks the that. way it does. Um, so is it beautiful? Is this documentary beautiful because the film is different than what people use today or? Why would well, why do people you don't use film today? At all. <laughs> There's this invention called the, the digital camera. Really, yeah, okay. So nobody yeah. uses film, really. Well, I mean, like, if you have a ton of money, for example, really? like Adam McKay making yeah. Lakers show, yeah, you can use film because film is super expensive and the oh, processing is. is really expensive and it mm-hmm. slows down the production because you have to go to a lab with the film and then convert all the film which also takes up time. And so every day you're on mm. production of a show like that is like yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. And so it's prohibitive. Now there are all sorts, there are tricks that you can do. You can use like vintage lenses and stuff like that yeah. and not, sh- but it doesn't really work. It's not quite the same, which is why that Lakers show does look so different is because it's shot hmm. on extremely expensive film. Huh. But back it. in the day, that was the way that everybody shot everything and it wasn't yeah. that expensive, you know? That's how like Sherman's March, for example, was made. One of the great documentaries. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Have you seen it? Oh, man, it's funny. Um, It's about this guy, Russ McElwee, and he's uh, he's his documentary is is that he's going to retrace Sherman's March through the South. He's from the South and he's going to end in Atlanta. Um, But the film is just about how he keeps getting distracted because he keeps meeting girls on the way. <laughs> it's Wait, really, really? Yeah, it's That's amazing. Hilarious. There's a documentary? <laughs> yeah, it's a documentary. <laughs> it's like, it's a very like sort of, it's seen as like a groundbreaking documentary in the sense that like, you know, like it's like this total diversion and meta type of documentary <laughs> about making a documentary that's yeah. mostly that's about amazing. like the, and so like if you, and it's very influential because it is like the sort of way in which people in the documentary world sometimes justify like an authorial intrusion right like um which is very common these days so if you talk about i talked to bing Liu about i mean the gap and he said that you know he had this he watched sherman's march and felt this like immense freedom because he could uh, now film himself you know right, um, right. <laughs> but anyway sherman's march looks cool because it's shot on film you know it's not like he was an amazing cinematographer yeah it's like literally you can point one of those cameras at anything and it'll look cool look beautiful um, yeah I don't know how we got onto that. Okay, second topic. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about this because I was recently in Florida. And, um, you know, Florida is what people think Florida would be in terms of COVID prevention. Nobody wears a mask. Everybody pretends like it's not happening. The mm-hmm. flight down to Florida was like 90% unmasked. The flight back from Florida to the Bay Area was like, a little more masked, but it was amazing to see the contrast because you could see it in the airport, right? Like now, Orlando, mm. I flew to Orlando, which is like not where Floridians fly out of. It's people from all over the country, obviously, oh. who have gone to Disney World. And so there's this massive right. security line there in the morning, and I was stuck in it for like 45 minutes. 
And so I could get a good assessment of my fellow Americans from around the world with their screaming <laughs> children who had all convened in Orlando to go to Harry Potter theme park or oh, whatever. Lord. And, you know, nobody was in a ma- It was like 10%, right? Yeah. And then you get to SFO, which is where I flew into, and everybody is wearing a mask, right, yeah. um, in SFO. And so I had this thought, and I was just like, look, I've lived in this, like, complete COVID bubble for the past two years, which I actually am thankful for because um, it cut down on rates here to a significant extent. I don't know if it was masks or whatever, but it was just when people are more careful and staying at home more, then obviously it's not going to spread more. I don't think that any even mass skeptic would argue against that. Right. Um, But, you know, there is this question of like, all right, well, how are we going to get out of this? You know, like, how are we going? Like, is it time right now? Um, you know, last week, I think that the average deaths from coronavirus were somewhere around like 300 to 400 people per day. Right. And so, like, there is a question. Yeah. Yesterday it was like 320, for example. Right. Um, now, that's much lower than it was at the peak. Right. And mm-hmm. it did seem like since we think in round numbers that a lot of people are waiting for like the deaths to get under a thousand to get the three digits and then maybe the world could restart. Now we're significantly below that. Now it could be that because of like whatever this new variant is called, where cases are going way up again, that at some point Mm -hmm. deaths will go up. But it does seem like, you know, between the therapeutics that we have and vaccination rates that maybe it won't, you know, go up that much. So I don't know. I wanted to pose this question to you. Like, are we, should we just like, is this the point where we should just get on with our lives? You know, like, is this when people should start going back to the workplace? Is this the time when, you know, like we shouldn't have, like there shouldn't be mask mandates or anything like that, right? Like that we should just say, okay, this is the most we can possibly manage this thing and we have to restart society. Your thoughts. Tammy. I mean, I think as a matter of fact, it seems like that is what we're pretending that is true. Right. And I mean, I think, um, Jay, you shared this article at WAPO that was digesting the latest CDC data about who is dying. And it seems like, as we know, a lot of vaccinated people, in fact, are dying, but that it's mostly the people who are kind of dying in the early days of the pandemic, like a lot of elderly people, a lot of people who were already very sick with other conditions. And to me, I think it brings back this question that people like Ed Yong and the Death Panel podcast have been raising all along, which is this is really about how we decide to treat our most vulnerable people in society. Right. So whether that's people with disabilities or older people and that we haven't we still have not established any kind of structural mechanism to deal with this and that we're back to this kind of individualized discourse of like, should we mask or not mask? Um, Am I going to go to work or am I not going to go to work? Um, So I don't know. I don't, I guess I myself don't feel particularly threatened by COVID right now, but I am also in the most luxurious living category of human in this pandemic. Um, So I don't, I don't know if I have like a good gloss on that. It does seem to me, like when that mass decision came down from the federal court, I was very disappointed in that. And it, it felt scary to me. I don't feel that we as a society probably are ready to resume yeah. whatever like sense the, of normal we have. The airplane decision, you're saying? Or the public the transit. Decision. Right. Yeah, or yeah. the public transit. Exactly. So then I, after that, I was taking the subway. I was taking buses and I was feeling very kind of vulnerable. And I'm not technically in a vulnerable class. Yeah. I, I took a flight last weekend. Uh, 
it was like a small flight. I think like probably 30, 40 people. And I think I kind of like three masks. Private jet? <laughs> yeah, private jet. PJ. Yeah. <laughs> PJ. PJ. Where'd you go? PJ. Uh, no, it was like one of these small parts. regional oh things God. to Providence. So funny. Um, yeah. So between okay. Philly and Providence, liberal, you know, Northeast corridor, Estella corridor. But, um, you know, like I, I think I counted three masks total um mm. and the attendants were not wearing it but i I don't, I don't know if it's good or a bad thing i just felt safe because i had a mask on myself that that was like good enough for me um yeah i wear a mask on the plane too yeah and i, I think that's like a that's a reflection of how privatized and individualized it has become at this point you know it's just like personal preference um when i do see someone with a mask i do i do feel a little solidarity with them you know like <laughs> You know, like Mas- you give him a nod, like ma- hey, masking. It? Yeah, seriously, it's like a the bald guy thing. That <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, like not I mean, passing the street. Yeah, yeah. That Washington Post article was somewhat eye opening to me, Tammy, because I think that there was this moral argument that was being made very implicitly that I rejected, but I thought that many people agreed with, especially in progressive, wealthy places that like. As long as it's just the unvaccinated people who are dying, that's their fault, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's on them. Right. And I don't care, right? Because mm-hmm. they had every single opportunity to be vaccinated and they chose not to. Now, there's part of me that sympathizes with that because I really find it frustrating people didn't get vaccinated. I don't know how much it affected sure. spread or whatever, but it's just like we have an ongoing emergency because like uh, that could have been mitigated significantly if you people had just gotten vaccinated, right? right. And so Agreed. that argument seems to not necessarily be true anymore given that the majority of people who are dying are old people and people who are immunocompromised and that does change it now at at the same time that number is much smaller right sure um but like i don't know it's interesting because i agree with ed and like ed young theoretically right like i understand i get that we and i've written about this right about nursing homes all the time like we take such bad care of the most vulnerable people in this country we allow them to be sort of exploited ruthlessly and eventually, you know, like die because of a lack of, uh, so that people who own nursing home chains or whatever can make more money, right? Like the political response is completely stymied by lobbies, right? And politicians will not stand up to them as you could see from Andrew Cuomo, right? Everybody though is like in bed with this, right? This is somewhat something that Mike Davis has written about too, which is these sort of like petty billionaires, right? Who have an undue amount of political influence. Nursing homes is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And so like, I agree with that theoretically, but then I'm just like, okay, well, the things that would lead to an actual change in elder care that would be uh, more protective are almost revolutionary at this point, right? Like um, you have to basically pry these things away from private equity you have to pry them away from from for-profit industry but at this point like 60 percent of them are in this place so like what are you gonna do you're nationalize all of them you know like it's not possible right yeah um at least within the time frame of this pandemic and so that's where i'm sort of at a loss where i'm just like okay like we clearly can't ask the rest of the public to continue to go with these guidelines or else we're going to have 20 years of Republican rule. Like I truly believe like, you know, like this stuff is very unpopular at this point. I think what's That's so what frustrating is it. like, what is so onerous right now? Like most people are out and about, um, you right. know, we had masking protocols, but honestly there wasn't that much compliance even before the court decision right. from what I saw. Um, people are, 
I don't know, as far as I can see, a lot of people are sort of back to work or semi-back to work. So this whole notion that we're suffering some sort of... Well, a lot of people aren't back to work. That's not true. I mean, most people are not back to work. A lot of schools... But a lot of people are. A lot of, like, there is more of a move towards that now. Like, I've seen just in the white-collar world around me, like, people are back, like, days a week. But beyond that, like, the service economy, the stuff that people kind of need to survive, like, that is that has been back. Yeah. Right, so I don't right. Know. No, I, I agree with that. Weird to like. Is well, it just a lot of it's like, based on it schools? So kind of. It's I think that's schools. the last thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it is schools. Right, it's uh, how long can schools be masked? Then, I will say that I feel some frustration about this myself because my child goes to a preschool, and they're masked outdoors still. And oh, indoors, yeah. you know, and I'm yeah. just like, yeah. all right, like, come on, you know, like these kids have not seen each other's faces for two years now. Yeah. And like, you won't let them take their masks off outside. Right. And they spend almost all their day outside, you know, That's and it's like, all right, like, yeah, like, it does lead to a reactionary type of response because you're just like, this is so unreasonable. And right. like, you can argue it makes no difference to the child and the child is not harmed. Right. But like. At some level, you're just like, okay, but why are we doing it anyway? Even if we argue that there's, because there's no harm in them being unmasked outside, you yeah, know, like this is right. like, these are like four year olds, right? Like right. they're like, there's, they have a better chance of dying from any number of other things than dying of like COVID, yeah. you know? And so like, uh, I don't know, like, I, I think that that's part of the reason why is, I think a lot of it is schools, Tammy. I think a lot of it was based okay. on like people's kids, right? I mean, like a lot of things, obviously, it's just like yeah. people can get to another level of anger when it involves their children, right? <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, it's Super like, side on anger. I, Tammy, but what do you think? Like, do you think that we should, like, uh, do you think that that really, like, anyone has a choice here, I guess is what I'm saying, given the political reality of this and given the, uh, and given how, I think over it that the majority of the population is right. Like, is it just going to be like, okay, well, the immunocompromised are going to have to stay in their houses for the next two years or something like that. I mean, like, it seems like that's what we're saying in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does seem like, so you just mean like politicians, they don't feel like they have a choice, right? Yeah. 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 No, I think that's right. And we see that in Biden's reluctance to speak out against the mask, the lifting of the mandates. Right. And, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, okay, so the the community, the sort of lobbying community around elders, like the ARP type community and the community around people with disabilities is like pretty small, but at different moments, they have had a lot of political cachet. And right. so it's a question for me, like, are they going to, because they're going to, they're making now arguments like, basically, this is like a violation of, of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is like, a portion of the population that has always supported Democrats. Like, what are you guys going to do for us? I wonder if there's going to be some sort of showdown around that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you at, in terms of your description of, of what the, how the Dems are a- acting. Like I definitely right. do not think they're going to come out strongly in favor of like very vulnerable people in our society before the midterms. All right. Um, like, there's a question, right? Though. Like what was the real difference between the COVID policy of Joe Biden and Donald Trump outside of rhetoric, which I agree matters, right? But outside of rhetoric and the actual policy decisions that were made, Hmm. what was the difference, Um, right? Uh, We had universal test. It took a while to get set up, but I don't know if it would have been 
set up significantly faster under Biden administration. I tend to think maybe a little bit, but certainly not anything that would be. No, I think you're forgetting how bad different. Trump was. I mean, it's different. And then there's like the FDA problem, right? Like, and then there was like, maybe though that would have been a little bit different. Yeah. But like, you know, like Biden has been pretty laissez faire about this, right? He hasn't really come out and been like, wear tweeted, like wear a mask you know, all the time. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, think he that, had the that luck of he's... coming in when things were a lot better already. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Probably would have made right. a huge no. difference in that first year. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, certainly he's been more laissez-faire than I would have preferred him to be. My impression is that Biden tried, the administration tried their best, but the infrastructure is just so bad in this country that that is a big reason why things were delayed mm-hmm. and haphazard and patchwork. And I think we're forgetting how bad Trump was. Like they pretended it did not exist for the longest time. They, they gave away millions of dollars to just. No, I agree. It was people, bad. Right. But like, well, the giving away money to random people, I don't fault them for really, because like, what are you going to do? You're like hire an investigative oversight unit when you need to get masks done, like in an emergency way. Uh, right? like, I don't, I don't know. I, they could have, I, I think that was bad. I don't think so. I think there's like a guy in Reddit like, who was like, anybody who can get a mask, we're just going to give you some money in the hopes that you can get a mask and some people scam the system. But I don't know. Getting mad about that also feels like it's kind of like getting mad at the welfare queen or something like that. Right. Like in the end, no, they were in this is a welfare situation. billionaire. Yeah. yeah. It feels kind of different. Yeah. This is a, this is yeah, a huckster. It, it, Right. But like, how do you like in that moment of emergency, like the biggest concern is not whether or not somebody is stealing money. It's not the biggest concern. It's symptomatic, though, of a really bad cronyistic system where like suddenly Jared Kushner's in charge of this. Like, why is Jared Kushner in charge? You know? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time believing that the outcome would have been significantly different. Because I think that basically the vera- the I think infrastructure thing, fucked over everything. They're, like the U.S. doesn't have the capacity to do right, but that any of this that stuff. was in place before Donald Trump. I agree. Yeah. Right. Right. Like that's my like the part the parts of points of failure outside of rhetoric, which I agree was right. important. Right. Was much more about like the way the United States is set up. Right. When you say, "Oh, yeah, you but... states do it," and the states are like, "We can't do this," and the federal government's right. like, "What?" And then like two months right. have passed. Right. Like right. that's 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 not that's like a systematic failure of the United States. It's not a systematic failure of Donald Trump. I feel. Um, I also feel really bad about the under five vaccine people who mm-hmm. are still waiting for the vaccine. Like that. There's been a huge fuck up. It's been like three months coming. Of and like the FDA and Moderna and Pfizer has signaled the vaccine's coming any day and then it just doesn't come. Um, and that right. is, mm. that sucks. Right. So I don't know. I don't know who's to blame for that, but I, I've seen some pieces come out talking like Zainab talked about it, like how it was just yeah, like, this huge bureaucratic fuck up. Well, Andy, what do you think? Do you think that it's time for us to get over this and just sort of go on with our lives because we have to at some point, like, is this the exit point? I think it's just privatized at this point. It's like individuals make their own choices about masking, um, trying to avoid it. But they don't, though, because the federal government lifted the mask mandate right on. But you can, but you can like wear a mask. If oh, you oh I, 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 right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's like it. I meant. Like, would you be okay? Are you okay with this sort of like? Okay, well, let's you know, let's let's try and get back. To I don't know. Like, we're so far beyond the point of actually stopping the virus, right? That like. Yeah, it's just a question of like damage control at this point. Um, I guess everyone is just kind of waiting to see if the virus, if a summertime, hopefully people, the virus will die or dissipate a little bit because people are outdoors more and all that. If we continue, but it does seem like we're still in this feedback loop or whatever you call it, like pendulum swinging back and forth. I think Philly 
got rid of their mask mandate then they reinstituted and reinstituted it recently because of the day <laughs> yeah, too you know and it's like <laughs> I so bad about that i i was very tempted in my class to get rid of the masks back in march and then i felt vindicated that ba2 came because like because uh, we'd have to put it back on you know and uh i, I didn't like i didn't like do it you know I didn't, I didn't like rub into my students faces or anything but i was like i, I felt vindicated you know like but i also don't like wearing masks more than two hours at a time can they know? hear you um i think so i think i think i've had to yell a lot more this year which kind of sucks right through the mask um but yeah it's like i, I don't i it's only tolerable because i'm teaching for 90 minutes at a time um if i had a job where i do we have to spend eight hours in a mask i don't know i, I might hate masks you know yeah right exactly right like if you're a kid at school for example and you had to wear one for 8 a.m. to like 3 p.m. for example, you know, like yeah, it's oppressive. Like, I kind of. So, get did it. you talk to the school about the outdoors masking? No, because it's like there's no conversation to be had, right? It's okay. like you don't want to become like that parent who's like, I think other people have, but they said that they have some immunocompromised staff. At which point, you're just like, okay, yeah. well, we can't, we can't fix this. But that's probably true at every single workplace, right? And at every single school. And that's the good question, right? Like, it's just like, okay, well, do you just buy this person out for, you know, and say, do you have a new career? Like, that seems incredibly unfair, right? Um, and yet, like, do you really think that this person is going to have a significant difference in terms of COVID exposure because the kids are playing outside without masks on? No, right? Like, and so um, right. it's all just like the same balancing thing that people are doing and, the only place in the country, I would say, where this type of severity of balancing happens and balance of masking is where I live. I think it's yeah, the only I place in America. Right. Like I drove down to Santa Cruz this weekend with my family. Like I didn't see a single mask, you know, yeah. like um, Santa Cruz, is like an hour south. Of here, yeah, yeah. You know? like um, I really think it's like the wealthy Bay Area. That's it. You know, mm -hmm. um, basically San Francisco, Berkeley parts of Oakland, you know, but definitely not other parts of Oakland, mm. Palo Alto, probably right. Like, um, yeah, up and down. So, so that's it. That's why. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes when you talk about it, it's like, I feel like you have such a different perception than I do, but I guess you do because <laughs> the, the place you're living has been pretty extraordinary. I think in a lot I of saw ways. like a family masked outside at a playground yesterday, you know, Kamala Harris field basically is what I call it. It's like this playground where at the school where Kamala Harris um, oh, okay. went to, was bused to. And they have, a, they finally put up a mural of Kamala Harris, you know, like, what is it now? Three years later is it or good? something like that. Well, it's not even her own mural. She's like with Malala and like some other, she's with like five other oh, people. Boy. Right. Wow. And so I, I don't know, like the, the, I can That's feel funny. this resistance from the school to change. Right. They definitely are never going to be Kamala Harris uh, <laughs> elementary. elementary I yeah. guarantee, there's no way. And which I honestly think is ridiculous <laughs> because I'm just part of it is just like, okay, this is a city that uh, wants to make a uh, Yuri Kochiyama elementary school. Right. <laughs> right. The other right. elementary schools are Rosa Parks. Ruth Acty, Sylvia Mendez, Malcolm X, um, MLK Middle School, right? Every single school is named That's after a civil so rights funny. person. This high, this elementary school, which right now is called Thousand Oaks, you know, it's just nothing. It's just the name of like a wealthy neighborhood in yeah. Berkeley, Thousand Oaks. But um, okay. it's like, come on. Look, I'm not a huge Kamala fan, right? But... <laughs> 
She is the vice president of the United right, States, right. Yeah. and she talked about this place as being important to her specifically. Just name it after her, you know? Like, like what credibility and are why you? Why is are, Malala on there? <laughs> yeah, why is Malala? Why is she like? They're like, oh, we need to put all the Allahs on here. Exactly. <laughs> Kamala, <Shana. laughs> yeah. Kamala, Malala. It's like that old, like, that, like uh, David Letterman, like. Uma Oprah, <laughs> from the um, yeah, it's just like all right, just like put her like come on, just do this, like this is so silly, you know. She's the vice president of the United States, like just <laughs> just name the school after her. It's okay, like you know. Yeah, I promise you, like the Berkeley side comments are are gonna they are gonna call you like a <laughs> neoliberal or whatever, but who cares about the Berkeley side comments? <laughs> Anyway, I can't believe I'm av- I would advocate for a school being named after Kamala Harris, but this one feels like it should be, right? That's funny. Anyway, my point is at Kamala Harris Elementary, I'm just going to start mm-hmm. seeing it there. I right. saw like a family that was totally masked, you know, like yeah, just like outdoors. playing kickball type yeah. of thing, and I was just like, that's like, you know, that's a little. I still, yeah. you still see it, I and I would say three months ago that was that was the norm, yeah. right? Like, is that you would see people in these spaces masked. Not so much anymore, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is just because I live in the weirdest bubble about COVID um, hesitance possible, and it's chafing me. Well, I will <laughs> say, in New York, does feel pretty normal. I don't. I mean, like masks. Yeah, off New, York, in New York. I really. felt totally. Masks off. People are yeah. going to work. People are hanging out inside. Blah blah blah. Like yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I don't. Know. I yeah. There's. We've I've been we've been hearing stories of like people we know getting it and we're like maybe we just already had it um, and I guess it's like still part of you almost like playing like a perfect video game or something like that wants to get through without ever getting it but at the same time like the severity <laughs> of it or the risk of it seems much less obviously than at the beginning. It's, it's probably almost, better to get it at this point, don't right, you think? For so that you sake, have yeah. more protection against like possibly more bad variants, you know, like right. more deadly variants. I don't know. I would get it. If I didn't even notice it, I would try and get it like every week. You know, I wonder like, if we've all had it and we just also because we don't just test regularly. Build me so up. Like, I don't know. I test all the time. It. I you test know, like, you do. two to four times a week because no of my oh, kid's wow. school. Okay. Yeah, so, we wow. have to test. Yeah, I see. Yeah. We don't. Have yeah, because that I don't have that much data on myself because I don't test that regularly. Yeah. So the lesson here is that you, Andy and Tammy are COVID deniers. <laughs> and We're cos- Cosplaying as concerned. Yeah. As concerned. Oh people, whereas I am the only one following the rules. <laughs> and the second I bring up the rules, all these rule breakers are like, oh, my God, I can't believe you would break the rules. Yeah, Jay. You know? That's the, that's a lesson here. OK, I got it. Oh, my God. You know? The only virtuous <laughs> man left, you know, is starting to crumble. <laughs> um, no, I agree. Um, anyway, we don't have to talk about this anymore. I just thought it was interesting because I thought that um, – in my travels, because I've been traveling recently, which I do not recommend to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Traveling sucks these days. I will say that that's true. I mean, it's it is miserable. Great. People are out of their minds yeah. on these planes. But um, I think that uh, that basically everywhere has gone basically to some degree of normal. Mm-hmm. And that everyone's just going to be fine with it. And this is just the way we're going to go forward. And individual workplaces will negotiate with their workers about how often they have to come in right but um i don't know i I think it's okay i mean i don't i don't really i have a hard time really getting mad at people who have sat in their houses for two years right um 
as long as they're like vaccinated and yeah, have, no, it's have fine. tried their best, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the question for a lot of educators is in the fall, are you still <clears> going to be wearing masks? Because I think a lot of people take off their masks this spring. Well, in most places, they have not, the kids haven't been wearing masks in school at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They get, Isn't I mean, that true in New York too? In New York City, the, the kids don't wear masks in school, I don't think. Is that right? I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think in the universities, they still do. I mean, again, it's like the sort of gradation of like the elite universities have a pretty good mask policy and then downwards, right. it's like less and less. Um, but uh, I don't yeah. know. It would be nice to teach without a mask, but part of me is like, I don't know. It's like, uh, I don't want to like lose the argument <laughs> that, that this stuff is important because I feel like people are trying to take it off too early. So yeah. yeah, the duality of man. All right. Um, do we have anything else that we want to talk about? Did I forget something? I think that's it. You should time. watch the Wobblies film, everybody. Um, I think it's at MoMA right now. So, you know, if you live in, is that right? It, or it was, it was commissioned by MoMA or something like that. It's in the MoMA library. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Back in the day. It is playing at Metrograph. Mm-hmm. And um, a bunch of other theaters. But is, is it online? Universally online anywhere? And or? it's online at it's going to come online at, through all of the major channels soon, but I think right now it's only on key. Really? Okay. Wow. Why yeah. is it such a big release? Do you know? So it'll be good. This is a moment. Yeah, it's interesting. That we're... It kind of speaks to it, that, right? Yeah. Maybe. I think yeah. it's. Oh, it's interesting. We're interested yeah. in it. Yeah. The, I, the IWW, I don't know. Like, so what, what unions are they still involved with? Like, I, is it just the ILWU? Is there other places? The overlaps? I think. Right. I mean, so one of the things that people might remember is about a decade ago, there was an, there was a kind of the second chapter of Starbucks unionizing and that was a Wobblies campaign. Oh yeah. 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 Um, like okay. with Dan Gross and stuff right. after the eighties, right. nineties breakdown of the Starbucks right. union. And so right. that was one, um, Burgerville, the Burgerville chain in Oregon. In Portland? Is Wobblies. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it is. So there's, there's, yeah. So there's some spots around the country where you see occasional wobblies activity. Otherwise, I think it operates as a solidarity union. People pay dues and are part of right. it, but they may be represented by a different union in their workplace. Okay, cool. All right. Well, you know, <laughs> I think it was a cool, I thought it was a good film. It's a very nice idea to have in your head, right? Um, and um, certainly, I think, well, maybe not at this stage of the organizing around Amazon, but down the line, like these are the types of conversations that they should have. And, um, how do you inspire people? Uh, and how do you sort of get over whatever ways in which people are trying to divide people, right? Like, I mean, the Republican Party seems right now to be very intent on that, right? Like, sort of separate the white working class out from everybody else. Yeah. And in some ways to also separate the black working class out from everybody else, right? And to make it like a black and white uh, versus the immigrants in China type of thing. Um, that's sort of like Shady yeah. Vance's um, messaging, right, at yeah. least. And he's mm-hmm. going to win. You know, he's going to be a senator. Oh, my God. Yikes. His odds on predict so it now nice. are like 70%, you know? Um, really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's going to win. Uh, that Trump endorsement did it. And now it's all over but the crying. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> the, Breathless anger of the, of the you know, progressive media, uh, which I think is going to cover him <laughs> like, you know, it's, he's going to be like a mini Trump, you know? Oh, you know how like in Mario, there's like Bowser and Bowser Jr. (laughs) J.D. Vance is like Bowser Bowser Jr. Jr. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Uh, okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening to our show. We do this every single week, uh, except for one week, two weeks ago, where we didn't do it. We apologize for that. But, you know, honestly, we've been doing this podcast like 170 episodes, and missing only one is an amazing accomplishment, right? Like, uh, um, not to make any excuses, we do apologize for that. But, you know, let's keep things in perspective here. Uh, what am I Oh, yeah. You can support the show at goodbye.substack.com. Um, my eyesight right now is horrible because I've been trying to wear these glasses, Tammy, and because those? my eyesight's bad. And the problem that I have with these eye glasses is that uh, I was they're supposed to be bifocals, but I told the person who was making them, I was like, don't worry about the bifocal part because I'm not going to use them uh-huh. to read. But the problem is I actually do need bifocals. And so when I put these on, Whoa. I can read things really clearly that are far away, but I can't read my phone. Uh-huh. And so I have to oh, hold no. my phone like at full arm's length. Oh, my God. <laughs> it looked crazy. I look <laughs> absolutely insane. Oh, my God. Because it's like the only way I can see the letters oh, is to like hold it way out, you know, almost to the point where my arm is stretching. And so these are worthless, but at the same time, my eyesight is getting worse. And so if I don't wear it, I have to somehow get the lenses changed, but I'm too lazy to do it. And so my choices are either to walk around like half blind and not be able to read anything or to like look insane, you know, and also get nauseous because the glasses are I don't know. Oh my God. I got to fire Can you get contact lenses? Yeah. Okay, contacts. Do they make those? Are there the any optometrists in the Discord? Yeah. Need <laughs> yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in a bad spot. Um, okay, you can contact us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or on Twitter at ttsgpod. Uh, yeah, Tammy, Andy, thank you for this uh, week. And um, let's, uh, let's, you know, let's meet again next week. Let's do it Adesso si livro con te patiro su navi pe mari che io lo so